What's up, everyone? Welcome to the latest episode of Note to Scene. This week, we got a deep dive on the rise and fall of Victory Records. You can listen to the official Note to Scene radio show over at 94.3 The X in Colorado every Saturday night to 8 to 10 p.m. local time. If you want to check it out and you're not in the area, you can download the station's app. Just search 94.3 The X in the App Store and tune in this Saturday. You can join the official Note to Scene Facebook group to discuss the show, industry numbers, scene nostalgia, and more. I want to give a quick shout out to everyone who's been posting in there over the last two weeks and having conversations. I'm not able to look at everything all the time, but I'm so happy it's becoming a place for listeners of the show to have discussions. If you have any comments, questions, or requests for deep dives, email me at notetoscene at gmail.com. There was a time when the only enemy in the scene was Victory Records. Before we learned that our world was filled with narcissistic, borderline psychopaths, hell-bent with toxic intentions, we grew to really only have one common enemy, and that was Victory. We didn't really even know why, other than the fact that one of the scene's biggest bands of the last decade told us the label was screwing them. We had some other notions back during the previous decade as well, from Drama with Thursday, Taking Back Sunday, Atreyu, and others, to a separate infamous lawsuit with Hawthorne Heights, but the A Day to Remember trial was the true final nail in Victory Records' coffin. And now we're here in 2021. The label has been sold, the catalog dissolved under a new name, a reputation in complete shambles, and an owner who actually somehow still made it out fairly unscathed, all things considered. So how did it all happen? How did the home of some of the scene's first massive bands become a living, breathing nightmare? Before we get started, I want to lay the groundwork with this tell-all blog post that former Victory Records Vice President Ramsey Dean wrote in 2009. It's about a half an hour read altogether, and I encourage anyone who finds this episode interesting to read it in full. But I'll be referencing it throughout this dive, most notably around the Hawthorne Heights lawsuit and constructing who Tony Brummel really was as a person when all of this was going on. When I say any information is coming from Ramsey, it's from what he wrote in that blog post. I'll post a link in the Note to Scene Facebook group as soon as this episode is live for anyone who wants to give it a read. But all right, like every deep dive, let's start at the beginning. Now, the problem with Victory's beginning is that it is kind of difficult to find information about it online. The Wikipedia page has been wiped clean of most historical markers. It's honestly surprising that the legal issues section is still there. But from what I can find, Tony initially started Victory all the way back in 1989. According to a couple bios I found on him, he was in college studying to be a history teacher at the time. But according to Ramsey, although Tony apparently liked to brag that he never went to college and had a disdain for people who did, Brummel actually did go and just dropped out after the first semester. Ramsey says Tony attempted to be the frontman in a band, but it didn't stick, and he started victory as a way to avenge the people who rejected him from the spotlight. A lot of his early releases were just seven inches for local hardcore bands that he grew to like from going to shows. From what I can find, the first official Victory Records catalog release was from a band called Inner Strength. It was five songs and called Time for Reality. It is actually on Spotify under an early Victory compilation release called The Early Singles. But to set the scene for the time, hardcore had swept the nation in the early 80s, but quickly died out from larger conversations by the middle of the decade. Hair metal became an international phenomenon, and once that bubble popped by the end of the late 80s, 
Every rocker was trading in their hairspray and leather pants for flannels and loose-fit blue jeans because grunge was officially in. But during all of this, hardcore continued to survive throughout the nation's underbelly music scene. Around the time Brummel officially launched Victory, Gorilla Biscuits, Youth of Today, and Judge were a few of the heavy-hitter names of the genre at the time. By the early 90s, Tony had jumped from 7 inches to full-length albums, and in the years following the decade's halfway point, Victory had inserted itself into being a necessary talking point within the hardcore genre. Then, thanks to moderately successful releases from Earth Crisis and Hatebreed, the label catapulted to the front of the genre and began driving the conversation instead of just inserting itself into it. It's funny because so many new age hardcore kids treat Hatebreed's 1997 debut Satisfaction is the Death of Desire as one of hardcore's few true holy grails. And even though they were seen kids listening to a day to remember 10 years ago, they have no idea that Hatebreed album came out on Victory Records. But anyways, all of that to say that by the end of the 90s, Tony had actually created real momentum behind the label and already released a few albums that would end up standing the test of time to certain extents. And this momentum is what set him up to capitalize on the storm that was about to erupt at the turn of the century. Emo's mainstream moment. And he was there right at the beginning with one of the first bands that really started turning major label heads. Thursday. I definitely think he lucked into it. Before Thursday's full collapse in 2001, Tony was still putting out fucking Snapcase and Stigmata albums. But once he got even just a sniff of the understanding in a car crash hype, he was full in. Full Collapse only peaked at number 178 on the top 200, but once the album was out was when the snowball really started picking up. The video for Car Crash was on constant MTV rotation, the album was flying off shelves. It was a sound that had been bubbling throughout the late 90s but hadn't been executed quite like Full Collapse and then Victory put real money behind it. It's funny, I found an interview that Punk News did with the band in June of 2001, just months after Full Collapse had come out, and they were asked how their relationship with Victory had been at that point. And they said, So far, our relationship has been great. We were worried about losing the familial atmosphere that we had grown accustomed to working with on Eyeball, but we had a good relationship with the staff at Victory. We have little disagreements here and there about packaging and things like that, but nothing insurmountable. And as we know now, that sentiment quickly changed. That little packaging disagreement resurfaced a year later in 2002 when Thursday released the first large-scale Victory Records callout in the form of a statement exposing the label, addressing the infamous Thursday whoopee cushion situation, and revealing that they were on their way to becoming a major label band through Island. Here's the statement in full. Hello everyone, we've noticed that there have been a lot of rumors floating around on the internet and especially on our message board and we'd like to set the record straight. We hope that this clears some things up. When we first signed to Victory Records, we were really excited about the idea of working with a label that supported bands we all grew up listening to. The opportunity to be part of a hardcore tradition was great. However, once we signed, many of our friends warned us that we had probably gotten ourselves into a situation that we would regret. At first, we weren't sure what they were talking about, but we figured that it was okay because part of our deal with Victory was that we could go to another label if we choose to do so. The deal that we signed stated that any movement away from Victory had to be towards a major label, which at the time seemed like a far-fetched idea to say at the least. 
In any case, soon after beginning our relationship with Victory, we began to realize what people had been warning us about. The problem started with what we thought were minor issues. For full collapse, we had intended to make a nice booklet for the artwork, but Tony, the owner of Victory Records, would not allow that. He told us that it would be cheaper to do a one-page insert and that the lyrics to our songs were unimportant and should be left out of the packaging. We obviously disagreed and worked out a compromise that would ultimately produce the final packaging for Full Collapse. In another instance, while we were visiting the Victory offices, we discovered that for promotional purposes, they had made Thursday whoopee cushions that they intended to have passed out at the Warp Tour. We were kind of shocked by this and were also puzzled why we weren't consulted beforehand. Jeff sat down with Tony and expressed the band's position on the matter and asked Tony if Victory would get our approval before doing things like that. Tony's response to Jeff was that Victory was a big company and that they didn't have time to run everything by the band. On several occasions, we expressed to Victory that we needed to communicate more to make sure that we were on the same page regarding promotion and art direction. Unfortunately, it never got any better. Tony began to promote our song Understanding in a Car Crash for a second time without ever informing us of any plans to do so. We still have no idea what their future plans are concerning radio promotion. On our way out to the Murder City Devils Tour, we stopped in at Victory for a friendly visit. Steve and Jeff sat down with Tony to talk about how things were going. Tony told them that he was sorry that Thursday wasn't living up to his expectations, but that it was okay because he had just signed a new band that was going to open up doors for everyone on Victory. We expected at that point that his thoughts on our progress as a new touring band would have been more positive. We knew that we weren't selling millions of records, but we were touring relentlessly, and by most indie label standards, one could say we were doing well. Tony's words were not exactly words of encouragement or satisfaction. About a month or so later, while we were on tour with Saves the Day, we suddenly found ourselves with a new best friend. Tony seemed to think that the more high-profile tours, i.e. 1,500 to 2,000-cap clubs, were the tours we should have been doing all along, never mind basements and VFW halls, never mind forming meaningful, intimate relationships with people with their own self-sufficient DIY scenes around the country. The calls we were getting from Victory became more frequent. Tony started calling us just to say hello or to ask how record sales at shows were going. We found it disheartening that this support wasn't there from the beginning. It not only seemed that this new friendship was disingenuous, but it was also defeating to us. The notion that all of our touring before this tour, which totaled three-fourths of a year straight, was not worthy of moral support was upsetting. Instead of Tony's relationship with us being based on our love for music, it was based entirely on numbers. Throughout this whole time, we were approached by various major labels. We were initially shocked that our tiny band was getting such attention. As certain labels grew more persistent through the course of the year, we found ourselves having to seriously consider their attention as something worth entertaining and learning about. We were very cautious for obvious reasons and were still uncertain that moving to a major label was the right decision for us. We have always been concerned with maintaining a familial and mutually caring relationship with people we have worked with, and at the time there was so much we didn't understand about major labels. While we were on tour with Saves the Day, we found out through the grapevine that Tony was probably going to sell a part of his label to MCA. Of course, he has every right to do this, but one would think, as we certainly did, that being an indie label, he might consult his bands about it. This was not the case. Feeling deceived and nervous about such a potentially serious move, and with the knowledge that becoming part of a major not of our choice was going to happen regardless of what we felt, we decided to find other options. 
We brainstormed and knew that there were other indie labels that we would have loved to be a part of. However, we were contractually blocked from moving to another independent label. One label, Island Def Jam, had been coming to our show since we started touring full-time. They had seen us at our worst, they knew at the time that we were not concerned with radio or huge record sales, and they understood that they just wanted to tour and play music. Throughout the entire year, various members of the Island staff would come out to our shows and tell us that we played well and show their support for us. Later, they would express interest in working with us. After hearing from several major labels over the last year, and after learning of Tony's dealings with MCA, we decided that it was in our best interest to sign a deal with Island. While our deal with Island is subject to our getting released from Victory, which Victory is obligated to do according to the contract, we are confident that we will soon be part of the Island family. Victory Records helped us very much. They helped us to make a record and get it out to people. However, we have realized that we are not and never will be creatively aligned with Tony and his vision for our brand and his company. The idea of family is very important to us. Members of a family should treat each other in a forthright, honest, respectful, and supportive manner. This is not the case with Victory because of the way Tony has acted towards us. We have been deceived, bullied, and compromised to an unsatisfactory end. This is not to say that we don't care about the members of the Victory staff. We wish them all the luck in the world. We simply want to continue autonomous from Victory. Regarding MCA Records, because of their deal with Tony, they have now begun to promote Full Collapse as if it was their own. However, we have had no communication with them and we do not consider ourselves an MCA band. We are looking forward to building a relationship with Island. They have illustrated over the last year that they understand the basis of our band and they have no intentions of changing the music that we naturally write, record, and perform. Neither do we. This last year has been amazing. To all of you who have come out to our shows and shown your love and support, we would like to let you know that it is greatly appreciated and we sincerely thank you. Being a newer band out on the road, we took a leap of faith that was initially very scary, but thanks to all of you, it has been an incredible experience thus far. And while this year has been so much fun, the situation has been very trying. We're confident it will be worked out, but we want you all to know that we will do whatever it takes to ensure that we obtain full and complete control of our music in the way in which it is presented to you. We hope this settles any confusion. So, despite all of this, even though it was in their contract that they could leave victory if they were going to a major, it all ended up in court. And according to Jeff Rickley, the label took them to the cleaners. Here's what he said about it years later. When we parted ways with Victory, we got our asses kicked. The lawyers killed us. Victory's lawyers were so strong. What's probably the most wild turn of events in any Victory feud is that Thursday went back to them in 2007 to release a CD-DVD bundle that would tell the band's 10-year story up to that point. It confused the hell out of people because the fallout between the two had become so well-known in the scene throughout the years since. Here's what Jeff had said when the release was announced. We thought it would just confuse the fuck out of everybody. The line of events that led us back to doing a release with Victory is so convoluted, but really kind of interesting. So when we started having trouble with Island with certain things, and we were asking to be let go, and they didn't want to let us go, we actually got the lawyers that beat us up from Victory, because they were the fiercest we had ever encountered. It's funny, because after we got off Victory, Tony sent us the royalty checks more regularly than anybody else we know. It was weird. The lawyers were like, yeah, he still talks about you guys positively. And that was strange for us, because it was so fucked up at the end there. Just makes sense because Tony owns the publishing on the Full Collapse songs. We'd be working with him on the DVD no matter where we did it. 
A lot of the footage is full collapse heavy because that was one of the most interesting times in the band. We realized it would just be better to work with him and not against him. And that was the last, although incredibly odd, public chapter of the Thursday in Victory Records battle. But it was only the beginning of a war the label would wage with many of its other bands that soon followed after. Next up, we're Taking Back Sunday, Atreyu, and of course, the infamous Hawthorne Heights case. In his blog post exposing victory, Ramsey goes on at length about how Hawthorne and his own inclusion in the situation, a little less about Taking Back Sunday and even less about Atreyu, but it's enough to paint a picture about each of their stories. Let's start with TBS. They released their debut album, Tell All Your Friends, in 2002 on Victory, and literally exploded. It was like one day the world was without TBS, and the next the band had taken over everything. Now, Tell All Your Friends wasn't a massive success right out of the gates. It sold 2,000 units first week and peaked at 183 on the top 200. But anyone who was watching could tell that something big was about to happen with that band. That momentum drove their sophomore album, Where You Want To Be, into one of the scene's biggest independent moments in history. It sold 163,000 units first week and debuted at number three on the top 200. This album flew off the shelves in a way that turned the heads of major labels faster than most other genres at the time. But despite the massive sales, the band wasn't seeing much money return to their wallets. According to Ramsey, that money was literally going anywhere besides the band. Here's what he said of the money that was coming in on the Where You Want to Be cycle. Tony did sometimes recoup and pay a small royalty, but it was smoke and mirrors, pennies on the dollar. He would tell a band they were recouped and start throwing a few bucks their way, but the big checks never came. It was done mainly to say that if they were at a major label, they wouldn't be recouped, but at Victory, they were that much closer to that dream check. But again, it never came. And if success shined on any band, so came the scorn and eventual falling out. Bands would be deemed disloyal or disrespectful for embracing their fame, and their end of the bargain would be flushed into marketing expenses, quote-unquote. Royalties were payable quarterly, and before each quarter ended, I'd get the amounts, totaling into millions of dollars that were to be dumped into bogus marketing programs to prevent the band from getting a royalty check. It was nothing short of malicious. Fuck those guys, they're not entitled to that money, was his quarterly lament. The royalties, which ranged into hundreds of thousands of dollars, would be calculated and I'd get the amounts I'd need to spend. The last quarter I was there, which I checked, according to Ramsey's LinkedIn, was Q1 of 2006. Tony laid $360,000 of Taking Back Sunday's money on me. I couldn't even find enough places to dump it. Television advertising, print ads, sale pricing, end caps. And then we'd play around with dating and try to make it stick, but sometimes even that didn't purge at all. In this business, people ask you to do unethical and even illegal things all the time. There is a whatever-it-takes attitude to breaking artists. As if we were fighting a war, we did it for the glory. But the things Brummel was asking went against everything me and this miscreant-filled business believed in. These were war crimes. A very small percentage of artists ever get a record deal. Most that do never even make it to a second album. That very rare artist who has the talent and the drive to get themselves to where they see a royalty check is as rare as a four-leaf clover. But when a victory artist had this grail in his grasp, Tony just kicked it away. 
If indie was supposed to be synonymous with integrity, then he'd sold out the entire indie community. He wanted it all to belong to him because that's what Victory Records was about, the brand, and the man behind it should be the lead story. Much like his distant idol, Steve Jobs, the focus should be on the company he built and the brand he created. Unfortunately, Brummel was in the business of selling people, and they deferred on his contribution to their research and development as a product. In the end, TBS did manage to escape Victory's chokehold. They officially announced that they had become a major label band and signed to Warner Brothers in June of 2005. But the fight to leave had begun way earlier than that. According to Ramsey, the band managed to force Victory's hand by saying they refused to record new music again unless their contract was renegotiated. Because of this renegotiation, an arrangement was later made that allowed for their contract to be bought out and then they were signed to Warner Brothers. Ramsey said Warner paid Tony over $2 million to get TBS out of their contract. But in typical Tony fashion, he didn't care. Here's what happened next, according to Ramsey. Brummel sent a castigating email to the man who wrote the check, Warner Brothers president Tom Whaley, calling him an employee while Tony was in the vaulted position of entrepreneur, not only CCing many of the top brass at Warner Brothers, but BCCing the berating to competing labels. His last words to Jillian Newman, taking back Sunday's manager, were, you fat fucking, I'll just say Jewish slur here. He was our own Mel Gibson, only he was drunk on his own fluid. A Victory employee once confided to me, dude, the level of anti-Semitism in this place is out of hand. Just another one of the rules in the Victory employee manual Brummel wasn't going to play by. So although at this point, TBS isn't even on Victory anymore, but Tony wasn't done with them. A few months after they had signed to Warner, it became public info that Where You Wanna Be had sold 500,000 units and Warner had submitted for the album to be certified gold by the RIAA. But Tony was pissed that they were submitting the album that Victory had released. And according to Ramsey, he just flat out didn't want them to get a plaque. The Chicago Tribune spoke to Tony about the situation and did an article on it. Here's an excerpt from it. Brummel, 34, isn't proud of the gold record status. He sees it as an affront to the integrity of Victory. He wants the certification revoked and he is firing off scathing emails and threatening to sue. My animosity is based on principle, not anything else, he said. It's about what is right and wrong in this business. It's also one of the inherent risks Brummel runs by being a small independent in an industry of giants. When one of his bands breaks out, it may be wooed away with the big money, extensive distribution, and radio play that major record companies command. To Taking Back Sunday, a guitar-based band from New York that belongs to the emo punk movement, he only has this to say. You didn't stay until the end of the party, so there are no awards. And just when you think that would be the end of it, Tony sent another shot that pissed the band off. A few months before the infamous Hawthorne Heights statement that we'll get to in a minute, TBS were out on a tour in 2006, minding their own business, and a big business at that, and wanting nothing to do with Victory or Tony. So Tony made an unauthorized tour booklet with TBS on the front of it, and remember, they weren't even on the label anymore at this point. Tony then sent out his infamous street team to shows on the tour and passed out the booklets to kids, which featured TBS on the front, but said nothing about them on the inside and only featured the label's roster and releases that were coming out at the time. And of course, on the back was a massive picture of Tony himself. Here's what Ramsey said of that situation. 
The band had publicly talked about the abuse they'd suffered, the day and night nagging, the name calling and accusations, racial epithets, the lying, the contracts, the deceptive accounting statements, but it still didn't stop fans from being sucked in. Victory defined punk rock, and many kids would support the label's releases based on faith alone. The commitment of these kids created a labor pool to draw them into the Victory Street Team, a network of kids who would work for free. It was a way to impress their friends and entertain their fantasy of working at a record label. But it was mostly thankless hanging posters and handing out samplers. Vandalizing was practically in their job description. They'd even hit other labels' offices when they were in the right town. If they were good, we'd pull them off the streets, give them a van, and put them on salary. From there, they might even make it to the home office. Kids are sheep. We are their shepherds, Tony would say. Like a Trojan horse, when the Taking Back Sunday tour brochure was open, the pamphlet hawked the current roster of victory bands the kids should be buying instead of Taking Back Sunday. The back page featured a full-length picture of Brummel in a disturbing rock star pose, along with a We Are The Culture message from the 37-year-old to the kids. Of course, after this, we eventually watched the fall of TBS, separate from Victory, over the course of the next decade plus, but TBS ended up being Victory's biggest band they ever signed. And after they ended up being a symbol to smaller bands who may have been faced with the ultimatum of either sign to Victory or give up the dream for good and call it quits. As Ramsey wrote, the horror stories of being signed to Victory circulated endlessly through the small business and even the unsigned bands knew to avoid the label. But there were desperate bands that looked at the success of a Taking Back Sunday and saw it as a last-ditch effort, if not to grab the money, at least some degree of fame, and the hope that their contract would be bought out. I was friends with a band who was in this exact position. Myself and pretty much everyone around them told them not to do it, but they felt as if it was their only option if they wanted to stay being a band. Alright, moving on from TBS to Atreyu. There isn't a lot of public information on the way the legal side of things played out between them and Victory, but there was a bit of an infamous email leak that has since been kind of lost to scene history. Atreyu signed to Victory in 2001 and started their rise to being one of their biggest bands with Suicide Notes and Butterfly Kisses in 2002. It wasn't an explosion the level of Taking Back Sunday experienced, but they did see notable enough growth to turn a few heads. In 2004, they dropped The Curse, which allowed them to survive any sophomore slump phase. And in 2006, they released A Death Grip on Yesterday, which sold 69,000 units first week and debuted at number 9 on the top 200. But the relationship between the band and the label had begun to deteriorate long before that moment. On March 17, 2005, an email from Atreyu's frontman, Alex Varkitsas, to the entire Victory staff, minus Tony, had leaked. It had been sent out the day before. It revealed not only just how high tensions had risen, but also that Tony had apparently asked another Victory band at the time, Scars of Tomorrow, who was opening Atreyu's tour they were on, to beat up Alex. And Tony even told the band he'd prioritize them more if they did. Ramsey confirmed this in his expose on Victory. Here's what he said of it. After a perceived disloyalty by Atreyu's frontman Alex, Brummel tried to talk the much smaller opening band on their tour, Scars of Tomorrow, into giving Alex an attitude adjustment in exchange for preferential treatment. Instead, the band, which was brought to the label by Alex, told him of the plot. He fired off an email to the office telling Brummel what he thought of him and Victory, more than happy to settle the score man to man. The email leaked to the industry and Victory was again the subject of widespread ridicule. 
That was the most notable public moment of victory and Atreyu's feud, and eventually things were battled out in the courtroom. Ramsey included a brief snippet of how significant Atreyu's stance against victory was. Here's what he said. Tim Smith, who managed Atreyu, the company's third biggest band, said they'd hired Marty Mad Dog Singer, a Hollywood lawyer with an A-list of clients that included Arnold Schwarzenegger and Catherine Zeta-Jones. Atreyu's accountant turned up over $700,000 in unpaid royalties, and they wanted answers. Expect a subpoena if it goes down, he said. I was starting to feel like Joe Valachi, the wise guy who revealed the secrets of the mafia to a grand jury. It was true. There were millions in squandered royalties buried in the victory books. And I didn't just know where the bodies were buried. I was the grave digger. But after Thursday, Taking Back Sunday, and Atreyu came what everyone thought would be victory's most humiliating moment. Hawthorne Heights. Hawthorne quickly began the label's marquee band after TBS had managed to escape. Hawthorne exploded after the release of their debut album, The Silence in Black and White, in 2004. Both Ohio is for Lovers and Nikki FM were getting radio play, and all signs pointed to a massive moment for their second album. But when the time came, everything blew up right in their face, all thanks to Tony. Over the few months before the release of If Only You Were Lonely, an artist named Neo began exploding and ended up releasing his album on the same day as Hawthorne. Threatening their number one debut, which Tony had been bragging about for months beforehand. Industry Forecasters has predicted that the two records will be neck and neck in sales by the end of the first week. So, on the eve of the release of If Only You Were Lonely, a statement was posted to Hawthorne's MySpace and sent out to their mailing list. It was a literal call to arms. Here's what it read. You buying our album tomorrow has much greater meaning than simply supporting Hawthorne Heights. Rock music needs your support. Our society and culture has put rock music on the back burner. If our album can debut at number one, all of us will have taken rock music back to the top of the charts where it belongs. You might ask, how has rock been put on the back burner? Our current example is an artist we are up against called Neo. Many people are saying that Neo is going to outsell us because Neo has had a tremendous amount of over-the-top mainstream media coverage. His album will be in stores tomorrow. Radio has played his single 160,000 times. Our single has been played 3,800 times. We know that does not seem possible, but it is the truth. Neo is on a major label. Hawthorne Heights is on an independent label. Rock music needs to win tomorrow. Independent needs to beat major tomorrow. If all of you take action, we can create history. The mainstream media may not choose to fully embrace this rock band from Dayton, Ohio, but all of you have. No one can take that away from us. It cannot be bought because it comes from the heart. This is what makes us different. Your support means everything to us and is the most valuable thing that we have. You are the people that we depend on. This is as much about you as it is about us. You hear our voices every night. Now we need to hear yours. You see us at our merch table every night. We need to see you in the stores tomorrow. We cannot come out on top without you. Passion and music with real meaning has a chance to beat out what the media forces down our throats. No one expects us to win. We need to prove them wrong. They underestimate us. Please help us create history tomorrow. This is a call to arms, a battle cry, not just for Hawthorne Heights, but for all of the other great rock bands and independent labels that we all love. All of us deserve this, and it is something that we can do together. But this wasn't the only thing that went out. 
As Ramsey documented, a separate email was sent to Hawthorne Street team that ended up leaking and exposing the whole operation Tony was attempting to run. The email called for street team members to go into stores and rearrange copies of Hawthorne and Neo's albums, placing Hawthorne's in a more prominent area and hiding Neo's. Here's how Ramsey described it, including quotes directly from the email itself. The street team's orders were to go into stores and attack the Neo product. As for Neo, the name of the game is to decrease the chances of a sale here. If you were to pick up a handful of Neo CDs as if you were about to buy them, but then changed your mind and didn't bother to put them back in the same place, that would work. Even though this record will be heavily stocked and you might not be able to move all of the stock, just relocating a handful creates issues. Even though the store will appear to be out of stock, the computer will see it as in stock and not reorder the title once it sells down, and then Neo will lose a few sales later in the week. Quote unquote. The two-page directive listed detailed instructions on how this operation was to be carried out, listing name brand stores to sabotage, Walmart, Kmart, Target, Best Buy, Coconuts, etc., and how to displace the product without being detected. With 150 street teamers hitting 10 stores a day, moving 10 Neo CDs over a one-week period, we would displace over 100,000 CDs, roughly 20% of the stock Universal laid out there, and cripple Neo's chances of snatching the number one spot. The email closed with a quote that some found disturbing. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be, for without victory, there is no survival. Once it hit the net, it took on an ominous tone, being credited to everyone from Brummel to Hitler. But anyone who knew me better knew it was the quote in my email signature. I wrote the infamous street team email. I sent it to Abby. She cut and pasted it, inadvertently cutting off the quote's author, Winston Churchill. That day, Tony became angry at Abby for not being specific enough and asked me to step in. Like most employees at Victory, Abby had been an intern. This was her first job. I knew the ins and outs of this end and the I knew the ins and outs of this end of the business better than anyone. I was also known as an innovator and when it came to marketing and promotion tactics, so I wrote up the marching orders nice and specific and then showed it to Tony. Ramsey included the emails in his piece. This is Tony's response to Ramsey's proposal of the street team letter. From Tony Brummel, sent Monday, February 27th, 2006 at 5.44 p.m. This is fine. It should look like it came from Abby. And that's how it went. In the hours this was in operation, I received reports from street teamers of stores being de-neoed, and digital pictures of empty bins came pouring into my inbox. Then Tony got even more specific. From Tony Brummel, sent Tuesday, February 28th, 2006 at 7.04 a.m. Keep in mind that moving Neo in a white, middle, or upper-class neighborhood will have less of effect than moving Neo in a more urban location. You literally can't make this stuff up. This really happened. A few hours later, someone on the street team flipped. The email with their mission was all over the net, and we were being crucified. Earlier, Tony was thumping his chest, hoping to become the new indie poster boy, and come to find out this was how Victory planned to lay claim to being number one. The worst part was the collateral damage. Since we did it on the floors of retail outlets who were supposed to be our partners, they were more than pissed off, and threats were made, and backpedal started. The press was relentless. Indies were supposed to have integrity. That was Brummel's whole shtick. Now Brummel was being called worse things than the majors. 
Industry pundit Bob Lefset said he went from hero to zero in a matter of seconds. If Bob knew what had been going on all along, he would have never even said that. Universal was threatening criminal action, and we needed a way out. Even worse, we were messing with Island slash Def Jam, one of Jay-Z's pet projects. Most rappers thought baggy pants and public assistance qualified them as gangsters, but I'd worked with Jay-Z protégés the Gotti Brothers. Before they formed Murder, Inc., they were over at TVT, and they were the real deal. The FBI had been trying to pin everything from drug trafficking to money laundering to shooting 50 cent on them, and now Tony was on their radar. His idea was to blame it all on Abby. From Tony Brummel, sent March 1st, 2006 at 9.57 a.m. It has come to our attention a joke email sent to some of our street team members by a junior ranking staff member was posted on the internet and has created some commotion. First of all, the message was by all means a joke. The day after it was sent, this was reiterated to the recipients of the said email. Victory, as many of you know, are the only label that is not on iTunes. We strongly support our friends at Music Retail day in and day out. Please rest assured that the message was a joke that backfired. Unfortunately, it fell into the wrong hands and was anonymously posted on an industry gossip board. From there, this joke somehow became a truth and began spreading around cyberspace. It is extremely upsetting to us that someone would go out of their way to cause harm and ignite random and malicious innuendo towards our company. Victory Records supports all artists of all genres on every label at all of your stores in hopes that everyone sells a lot of music. We absolutely want your music section as heavily populated as possible. That is good business for everyone. Thank you for your support. Nobody believed it, and there was another round of victory bashing. Abby was suddenly a celebrity. People were calling and emailing her. She received so many nasty posts on her MySpace page that she had to take it down. She resigned that Monday, and I couldn't have felt worse. Then I heard the spin. It was just the excuse Tony was looking for. Quote, that person is no longer with the company, was the official line, making it look like we fired her for misconduct and distance ourselves from any wrongdoing. I mean, you literally couldn't make up this story if you had to. This actually happened. In the end, If Only You Were Lonely ended up losing pretty significantly to Neo, despite all of this, and it didn't even get the number two slot. Neo managed to sell 301,000 copies first week. The High School Musical soundtrack, which had debuted the week before, placed at number two with 128,000 units, and Hawthorne finished at number three with 114,000. It all culminated later that year when Hawthorne sued Victory Records, claiming the label, quote, severely damaged the band's reputation and relationship with their fans, end quote, and conducted fraudulent accounting practices. They released a statement denying they had anything to do with the statements that were sent out on the eve of If Only You Were Lonely's release. Here's what it said. Due to recent events, we have decided to leave Victory Records. Our departure is anything but amicable. We have decided to leave Victory in part due to the actions of the man who sits at the head of the label, Tony Brummel. Tony Brummel is a man that cares more about his ego and bank account than the bands themselves. Many of you are familiar with the greed-driven letters sent out by Mr. Brummel. His manifesto calling rock supporters to arms and virtual declaration of war on hip-hop and neo done under the guise of a band message, as well as the street team letter which instructed people to rearrange our CDs, putting them in higher visibility areas and stores. Unfortunately, the head of the street team, Abby Valentine, who understandably resigned following this incident, took the fall for this. 
At the time of the letters, we were branded as racist by some, all over a letter that we didn't even write, targeting a genre which we have nothing against whatsoever. Because of these letters, our second album debuted at number three on the charts, an incredible feat which would normally be cause for joy, but now is tainted much like Barry Bond's statistics. When questioned about the letters, Tony was more upset that we had told the press that he actually wrote the letters, not us, because he was more worried about rumors surrounding Taking Back Sunday and Thursday's exoduses being justified than the credibility and reputation of his current biggest band. Coupled these letters in with him threatening the head program director at Q101 in Chicago for putting the new Taking Back Sunday song into rotation, to the point where the program director pulls saying sorry for rotation, and you can see why we would more than question whether or not the head of our label cares about us or his own ego more. Tony is a man whose greed knows no bounds. After selling more than 1.2 million copies of The Silence in Black and White and If Only You Were Lonely, we have never seen a single dollar in artist royalties from Victory Records. Tony will claim that we have not recouped, a term used by those in the music business which means the label has spent more money in advertising than has been made in, by CD sales. In fact, questionable accounting practices are the culprit, and we are in fact owed substantial amounts of money, much like audits from Taking Back Sunday, Thursday, and a tray you have uncovered. You may be wondering, why now? Why did they wait three years before saying something? Why did they sound happy in that interview? Like being in an abusive relationship, we let certain things slide as we were afraid, as many of the bands on Victory are, to stick our neck out for fear of being beaten. In this case, represented by the threat of not being promoted has been the case with certain bands on the roster. We're done being abused. The reasons stated above represent the final straw in a huge pile of hay that broke our backs. Undoubtedly, Tony will proclaim that we are ungrateful and our success was due solely to his promotional efforts. In reality, promotion is only a portion of the equation in a band's success. Even then, in our case specifically... Promotional efforts can be attributed to the hard work of the band and staff at Victory, many of whom recently resigned or were fired due to differences with Tony. Non-stop touring, dedicated fans, and songs account for the rest of the equation. We've accomplished more in three years than most bands do in a lifetime, and for that we are extremely grateful and consider ourselves very fortunate. Our situation with Tony Brummel is indicative of issues that all bands on Victory Records encounter on some level or another. We have decided to remove ourselves from the negative situation so that we can continue to do what we love best and focused on writing and playing music to people that care about what we have created. Coverage of the case was very consistent through MTV and alternative press. Victory even countersued Hawthorne at one point. But ultimately, in a fairly unforeseen turn of events, Hawthorne dropped the lawsuit in June of 2008. The band released a statement that read, We now regret having to begun the lawsuit we filed in 2006. We should have not listened to those who, for whatever reasons, were then advising us to pursue this strategy. We are sorry for having put Victory Records and Tony Brummel through this ordeal and regret any negative publicity that may have resulted. Many false, hurtful, and incorrect statements were made, especially on the internet, none of which are true. Tony Brummel and Victory gave us our start and did an unprecedented job with our first two albums. We hope that they can repeat that success with our third studio album. Unfortunately, we cannot change the past, but we're now taking steps to heal the wounds and start fresh. That statement reeks of it being court-ordered. Two months later, they released their highly disappointing third album, Fragile Future, The industry rumor around that album is that the band intentionally sabotaged it. 
who knows, I could see that being bullshit and I can also see it being completely true. The amount of shit this band went through in the first four years of their career would totally justify it. So not only did they have their breakout moment stripped away by their own label, but in the middle of their lawsuit against that label, their guitarist and screamer Casey Calvert died of combined drug intoxication. Hawthorne was on tour when he passed and the band found him on their bus. He was 26. After Fragile Future in 2008, a Greatest Hits album was released in 2010 through Victory that I'm sure they had very little, if any, say in. But other than that, the band went on to release a full length called Skeletons in 2010 through Wind Up, which is a whole other label deep dive for another time. But the damage had been done, and Hawthorne never regained the momentum they had when their own label sabotaged what still ended up being the biggest moment of their career. Alright, so after Thursday, Taking Back Sunday, Atreyu, and Hawthorne Heights, you'd think Tony would have learned his lesson or bands would just stop signing to Victory. But somehow, he managed to sign a group that would become the scene's biggest band during the first half of the 2010s. A day to remember. I was able to track down the original press release that Victory sent out to announce ADTR signing on August 11th of 2006, and they actually announced them alongside another band they had signed called Beneath the Sky, who actually made some solid metalcore mixed deathcore. But it's just funny because those two bands' trajectories couldn't have been more different. Anyways, ADTR signed to Victory. They released For Those Who Have Heart in January of 2007, and it was re-released a little over a year later in February of 08 with their scene classic Since You've Been Gone cover, and quite a few other bonus songs and additional features. That re-release worked much like the Devil Wars Prada's Plagues did. It became more popular than the original release. The ADTR Bird Icon cover became more associated with the album than the original cover of the man holding the bat behind his back, Same with Prada's Plagues. We talked a lot about this during Prada's Deep Dive episode last year about how the colorful graphic design of the reissue fit the era much better than the darker imagery of the original cover. But for ADTR, these re-releases do come back into play later on, and they play a larger role than I'm sure anyone realized they would at the time. In October of 2008, Victory re-released their debut album, and their name was Treason, with a new title called Old Record. According to Jeremy McKinnon, Tony forced the band to re-record the album for the release and only gave them two days to do it. So only the instrumentals on Old Record were new, and the band had to use the vocals from the original release on top of them. But regardless of the tensions behind the scenes, ADTR was on the verge of exploding following the For Those Who Have Heart cycle. And then they dropped Homesick, and it cemented their trajectory to the top of the scene. Homesick was released in February of 2009 and sold 22,000 units first week. Within a little over a year after it came out, it had sold over 200,000 units. The album is now certified gold, and the singles If It Means A Lot To You and The Downfall Of Us All have been individually certified gold as well. Anyone who knows anything about the scene knows this album was massive during the second golden era of the 2010s. Then they followed up with What Separates Me From You in 2011, and that did 58,000 first week, more than doubling their homesick performance and proving they were a real force to be reckoned with. But behind the scenes, their relationship with Victory was in complete shambles, and they had finally hit their boiling point. On December 15th, 2011, not even two months after the release of What Separates Me From You, court docs leaked revealing that ADTR had filed a lawsuit against Victory on May 31st, 2011. 
They went after the label for a number of things, but mainly a breach of contract. The band believed they had fulfilled their contractual obligation of releasing five albums with Victory. In fact, they initially claimed they had released eight, including the old record re-release, For Those Who Have Heart, For Those Who Have Heart re-release, Attack of the Killer B-Sides, Homesick, Homesick Special Edition, Homesick Deluxe Special Edition, and What Separates Me From You. And then they later added five more releases to this interpretation of the contract. They also claimed Victory owed them $75,000 in unpaid royalties and wanted ownership of their copyrighted recordings. Of course, Victory denied any wrongdoing and countersued them. These trials and their proceedings went on for years, but in the midst of it all, ADTR got the court to grant them permission to release Common Courtesy. Victory was obviously pissed. Tony knew that album was going to be massive, and he wanted that money. The actual first week is still debated among the industry today since the band self-released it, but the general consensus is that it did 98,000 units, which would make it the biggest non-breakout first week of the 2010s. And then in 2016, the media told you that A Day to Remember won the lawsuit. And they did. They got a very favorable ruling and a high payout level that you don't really ever see in cases like this. But Victory didn't completely lose either. You see, ADTR won three key issues, fulfilling their contract, controlling their publishing, and over Victory's digital royalty withholdings. The band ended up winning just over $4 million. Like I said, that amount of money is not common in these kinds of suits. The band went on the trial seeking $6 million, and when Victory countersued, they wanted $9 million. In the end, ADTR got four, and Victory got nothing. But what Victory did get was legal confirmation that they did, in fact, own the band's master recordings, but ADTR owned their music publishing. If any of this interests you at all, I really encourage you to look into what Taylor Swift managed to pull off against her old label. She's executing it right now. It's a huge, pretty unprecedented moment in the music industry. But ultimately, ADTR TR confirmed that they no longer owed Victory any music and can release new music wherever they pleased. And that was it. The nightmare feud between A Day to Remember and Victory Records was over. But in 2013, while everything was still going on, McKinnon actually gave an interview to Absolute Punk where he surprisingly talked extensively about Tony and the trial, which was still fairly young at that point. Here's what he said. Okay, we kind of knew getting in when we signed the contract that there was the possibility that this was going to happen one day if we ever did sell a large amount of records because, well, that's just what has happened to people who signed to Victory. But at the time, nobody cared. We were going through a hard time. We lost a drummer. We lost one of our main songwriters, Tom Denny, after he quit. And we were going to break up and go back to school and probably head down a different path in life. And then Victory Records comes in, and they were the only label that's interested, and were actually going to fund us in a way that we thought was good enough. And we realized that if we were going to put a huge portion of our lives into something, we at least wanted the opportunity to sound how we wanted it to sound. And they were the only label that was going to do that. And when you look at it like that, I'll always be grateful to them for giving us that opportunity. But at the same time, what you don't see from being in the band versus on the outside is that there's just no possible way of working with him. He's just, I don't even know how to put it. It's a terrible thing. We have been trying to settle with this guy, literally, the entire time. We didn't want this to happen. We don't want to be in a huge legal case. We don't want to have to pay lawyers this outrageous amount of money to do this. But there are times where I just straight up lose it because he can be so weird and just lying. And it's obvious that he's making jokes about it. It's like, come on, man, let's just go into another room. And we did once, just me, Josh Woodard, and him. 
And we start talking to him and we're like, you know what? If you would just do what you said you would do, then this wouldn't happen. If you just treat us the way you said you were going to in the first place, we would have stayed with you for our entire careers. And I told him that to his face. And look, if you look at what we've done over our career as a band, we're fiercely loyal when it comes to the people that have helped us, you know? And we would have loved just to be with Victory the whole time, but you just, you can't work with the guy. He's a person that cannot be understood even if you try. And for years, he surprised us every single day. Just a few months ago, Josh and I were flying around Chicago almost every weekend because we were trying to settle this, and he would write us an email saying, okay, let's talk settlement. So me and Josh would fly up there. Once on Josh's birthday, we flew on his birthday to sit in court. And then at the end of it, Tony just said, nah, we're not going to talk. I'm going to go home. And then Josh missed his flight. I know, I know, it's just a day, whatever, but you know what I mean? There's something sort of special about your birthday. It's just all over the place. I mean, I'm sure other labels have done that too, but it's not just that. He uses this contract as leverage, and that's his whole game. The whole thing is that he makes people sign these deal memos, and the reason there aren't any long-form contracts is because it's his way of pretty much being able to say, I can do whatever I want, and it's encompassed in this legal document. And you're scared. And we were scared for years. The time when we signed to the label, Atreyu was big, Hawthorne Heights was big. You heard about the Thursday thing, you heard about the Taking Back Sunday thing, but you didn't really know what happened, right? You know, that was before Hawthorne had gotten upset with them. The only thing he was trying to do with this is try and ruin our careers. He would always say that over the years when he would call us up and we didn't want to do something. For instance, he made us put out old record and what he would do is say, I'm going to give you guys this much money to do this. And then we'd come back with him and say, well, we don't really want to do that because we would have like two days at home to re-record this entire album. And he told us, you have to do this or I will end your career. And us being young kids touring in a van with no money, we were absolutely terrified. And what do you do? I mean, we can't do anything about this right now. And we were forced to go into the studio in two days and record our entire first album again. And we butchered it because it was two days. And it's something I absolutely am ashamed that we put out. And see, that's where it gets crazy. He tries to control people. And well, I won't name the band name, but there was a band that we have been on tour with multiple times that was an older victory band. And they were putting out their last album. And well, we were told that he kind of just shelved it as a way of forcing them to re-sign with victory. And they said, we're not going to do that. So he did what he did and it definitely affected them. So believe it or not, A Day to Remember wasn't even victory's last public feud. Next up was Streetlight Manifesto. The band had signed to Victory sometime in 2002, released multiple albums with them over the following decade, and of course had a significantly deteriorated relationship by the end of everything. In 2012, the band was scheduled to release their fifth album, The Hands That Thieve, but due to disagreements with Victory, the album was delayed multiple times and didn't end up coming out until April 30th, 2013. So April 30th rolled around and the album came out, but Victory withheld all physical copies of the record from Streetlight and therefore the band couldn't fulfill any of the pre-orders that came from their web store, although the record was available for purchase on Victory's web store and in major retail stores. Then the band released a statement and called for their fans to boycott all of their merchandise and CDs sold through Victory. Here's what they wrote. 
For the sake of keeping things emotion-free and legal, we'll cut straight to the chase and forgo the insults and accusations. It is and has been for quite some time our position that Victory Records is an artist-hostile, morally corrupt, and generally dishonest company, with whom we have had the displeasure of being associated due to a contract that was signed years ago. We're not writing this today to air grievances, of which there are many, Numerous bands' struggles with victory are well-documented, and many more are sealed by a court of law. So we figured if we're going to skip the allegations and try to solve the problem, here's as we see it. We're writing today to ask you to please boycott all streetlight-related items by not purchasing any of our records or merchandise from Victory's website, any traditional CD stores, online third-party retailers, or any digital distribution service, iTunes, Amazon, etc. Victory has a long-time reputation of pocketing all of the proceeds from a band's music and merch with shady accounting and generally bullyish behavior. If you want to support Streetlight, our music, and our ability to tour and continue to release music, please make all Streetlight-related purchases from our own web store or come out to a show and buy a shirt or CD from us directly. In regards to getting the music we make, you can buy directly from us, or alternatively, we're sure you can find a way to get the tunes onto your computer that may not be <clears throat> traditional, speaking a bit Metaphorically, there is a torrent of methods to accomplish this, and Google is your always loyal friend. As many of you know, we are in the final stages of recording our new album. It will be out and available this summer, whether via victory or some other method. We refuse to let our constant battles with our own record label hold back the album's release. We can take nearly forever to finish an album on our own. Thank you very much. And we look forward to being free from Victory's clutches once our contract with them ends this summer. We wish Victory Records no ill will or harm. Okay, that's not entirely true. But what we want more than seeing the bad guy get his comeuppance to see the villain get bitch slapped by karma is freedom from a company that we abhor. We want the money made by our record and merch sales to help fund the band, not a company we're ashamed to be associated with. We don't care about sound scans or charts or success as it's measured by an industry we can't stand. We just want our hard work to go towards something better than the record labels that destroy the spirit of independent music. Thanks for your time and support, and we will see you soon. Then, after two more years of rising tensions, Victory sued Streetlight Manifesto for $1 million. Imagine trying to sue a ska band for a million dollars. Unless you wrote the impression that you get in the 90s with the Mighty Mighty Boston's, a modern ska band ain't got that kind of money. So Tony took them to court, and the suit claimed Streetlight hadn't actually fulfilled their four-album contract and owed Victory another record, even though the band actually put out five releases under Victory. Tony claimed that the band had agreed to not count one of the albums toward their contract in exchange for getting a $10,000 advance, and then he said the covers album they dropped also didn't count, and aside from them supposedly not fulfilling their contract, Streetlight frontman Thomas Kalnaki had recorded an acoustic version of their Hands That Thieve album called The Hand That Thieves, while Victory was essentially holding the original one hostage from them. It never officially got released, but did end up leaking, and Tony went after them for that, wanting compensation for damages incurred due to the acoustic album. 
They went back and forth for a few more years and eventually released a settlement in April of 2017. Streetlight was allowed to leave the label and they were able to purchase all of their master recordings for an undisclosed amount. Then in September of 2019, Victory Records was officially bought out by Concord Music Group which is now an independent creative rights company that develops, manages, and acquires sound recordings, music publishing rights, and theatrical performance rights. It owns Fearless Records, Loma Vista, and a few other labels. Although the actual numbers of the purchase were never revealed, Billboard estimated that it bought Victory for somewhere between $27 and $34 million. Billboard also estimated that Victory was doing between $4.5 and $5 million a year in total revenue when they were arguably at their most irrelevant point in their existence. Shows how important healthy back catalogs are. And Victory had a big one, with over 4,500 masters and 3,500 compositions. The catalog has picked up six gold albums in the US, six gold singles, one platinum single, and combined sales from all artists on the label of over 15 million albums over the last 30 years. Concord has also acquired the Victory name and the Bulldog logo. The catalog was dissolved into Kraft Records, so when you go on Spotify or Apple Music today, you won't see Victory under any of their albums. It says Kraft. Concord also acquired Tony's Another Victory publishing catalog with the deal as well. Not a lot of people realized it back in the day, but there was a time when even Rise Records was releasing albums through Another Victory. But anyways, despite a career squandered by screwing over bands, Tony somehow made out with some pretty damn good money. And everything we just talked about isn't even all of the drama that went down with Victory Records. There was a ton of back and forth between them and Aiden. At one point, their frontman Will said they had sold over 500,000 records through Victory and never saw a single royalty check. And then, of course, there was the entire story of Will running an alleged sex cult. I've wondered if Tony ever even knew about any of that, but after doing this episode, I could completely see him just brushing it off and not caring. Shane Told from Silverstein has flipped sides more than once on his thoughts with Victory. And then there was the whole Design the Skyline story, which really didn't have a lot to do with Victory. Victory literally got backlash directed at them for signing the band. And the backlash the band got would have come regardless of the label they were on. But you get the point. Victory Records could have been a massive success story for the scene. But instead, it was a shit show that lasted nearly two decades. Ramsey summed up Tony near the end of his piece, and I think it's a fitting way to end the dive. A corporation is defined as a business entity with all the rights of a human. Brummel, in his quest for the ultimate corporation, became that business entity. He'd crossed over to become a dark alien life form created by businessmen. He'd ankled his humanity, holed up in his office, and uploaded himself into his Blackberry, and now only sought to satisfy his insatiable inner shareholder. Singular compared to the collective mentality of the major labels, there was something ironically fascist about the independent world. And in Tony Brummel, I saw something much more sinister. I'd come face to face with the horror. Not a dark, powerful entity, but a human who had hollowed out his own humanity to satisfy his own lust for power. I always dreamed of the big score in this business. We all did. But with the morphing mortality, the conflict of human emotion against corporate emotion, I'd see what side that one common emotion, greed, had favored. I wanted nothing more to do with it. His horror, if it really was his own, wasn't a horror that inspired fear, but rather repugnance. It was the worst traits we could all possess, growing unfettered by any trace of conscious or moral code, 
like a mutation. I saw him more as a medical oddity, a nightmare in evolution where our very humanity would be self-extinguished as we fought for survival in the monetized world we created. All right, before we go, let's run through this week's radio rundown real quick. MGK and Black Bear officially have a top five hit at Top 40 Radio, which is awesome. My ex's best friend comes in at number five this week, increasing nearly 6% in plays. With a handful of songs ahead of it dropping in plays, I think it's safe to say we're going to have some firepower to go up there and get a number one, which is so cool to be talking about. We'll see over the next month or so how it does. It's number three on alternative radio and number 27 overall on the Hot 100. 21 Pilots have another easy number one on alternative radio with Shy Away. That's a given at this point. The real test is going to be if they can have any real success at top 40. All-time lows once in a lifetime is already at number 12, up nearly 19% in plays. It's going to be an easy top 10. Hopefully, it can keep this momentum all the way to number one, and then we can focus on a top 40 push again. Nothing Nowhere makes a surprising jump up to 15. This is the highest he's ever been, although just breaking even in plays, so we'll see where that goes. Modson and Avril are at 19, up 3% in plays. The main are building some notable momentum, with Sticky jumping to number 30, up 75% in plays. Again, still low. I don't want to speak too soon, but I really do think the band is on to something with this song. Over at Rock Radio, we have Bring Me the Horizon still at number 6 with Teardrops, but up over 3% in plays still. I really hope we can break into the top 5 with that one. Architects break even at 8, but are unfortunately down over 5%. It might be time to get out on that one, but damn what an awesome ride it's been. A Day to Remember is Everything We Need has broken the top 10 at number 10, placing three scene bands inside the top 10 at US Active Rock Radio right now. Escape the Fates, see a pretty big drop to 15, and they're down 7% in plays. That one might be over. And then Black Veil Brides are sitting at number 18, up 4.5% in plays. All right, that does it for the show this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any requests for deep dives, email me at notetoseen at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Note to Scene on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and join the official Note to Scene group on Facebook. If you enjoy the show, please drop a review on iTunes. I'd appreciate it very much. Until next week, stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon.